story behind the story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is writer and archivist Jen Chaplin. Her first book, My Autobiography of Carson McCullers, was a finalist for the 2020 National Book Award and the Southern Book Prize, and it won the 2021 Lambda Literary Award, the Judy Grant Award, and the Christian Gauss Award. Her second book, Thin Skin, contains five essays that collectively explore the porousness of boundaries between humans and the environments we inhabit, between us and other people, between us and the social constructs we create, and it is the topic of our conversation today. Jen Shapland, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much for having me, Clara. Thank you so much for being here. This is a book, broadly speaking, about, as I said, the porousness of boundaries. But I've read in other interviews where you say that that wasn't your initial intention, that you didn't see those threads yourself until late in the process. Where did this book start and how did it reveal itself to you as a book about boundaries? It did kind of sneak up on me that that's what I was writing about. I started it at a writing residency and I knew that there were these different topics for essays I really wanted to dig into. And I had wanted to for some time. I knew I wanted to write about shopping and clothes. Mm. I knew I wanted to write about some of these sort of bizarre camping and traveling alone experiences that I had had. And I knew that I wanted to write about not having kids. I knew I wanted to write about contamination and nuclear weapons development in New Mexico. So None of those things on their face seem to be very related to one another at all. And yet I really kind of felt compelled to dig into each of those sets of questions. Self-help, that was the other thing I wanted Hmm. to write about. Uh, So that's the fifth essay. So those, those things kind of had shaped very early on. There were two other essays that I thought were also relevant that I had written earlier. But then as the essays progressed... It's almost like with each essay I wrote, I was like, oh, no, this is what it's about. Hmm. Like each topic seemed to be kind of the central idea. So it started with Crystal Vortex and writing about self-help. And then I was writing The Too Muchness, which is the essay that took the longest of any of them. And so for a while, I was like, I guess it's really about consumer culture, capitalism, our relationship to material things. But then by the time I wrote the title essay, Thin Skin, then it really seemed apparent to me that I had really been writing about boundaries this whole time and that each of these essays could be understood as the way you put it in your introduction was really great. Like this negotiation, not only with the literal, physical, corporeal thinness of the boundary between us and the wider world, but also the boundary between our idea of self and various constructs and structures in the world that shape that idea. On that last point, I think there's there's two essays that really stick out to me. One is The Too Muchness, which you mentioned earlier, which is sort of, it's the essay about shopping. <laughs> or It's what became yeah. of the essay about shopping. And also the the final essay in here on, uh, which is called, I think, The Meaning of Life, right? Which is about yeah. motherhood and the ways that women are coerced and cajoled and sometimes legally forced to be mothers and to see motherhood as the sort of pinnacle of identity. I'm curious thinking about, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm curious thinking about your process, about how, as you were writing these essays individually, you came to sort of, like, did you see connections as you went? Were you threading them together? Where did that come together? 
Definitely. They did kind of evolve together. Each one kind of ended up overlapping with the next as I wrote. And then I was often kind of revising the previous ones as I worked on the newer ones. I was working with an editor by the time I got to, by the time I was still trying to finish the too muchness and (laughs) had in that time finished Crystal Vortex and Strangers on a Train. Like I started and finished Strangers on a Train in the time that I was still working on the too muchness. It was the essay that I could not finish. But by the time I was kind of done with those first two, I had an editor, Naomi Gibbs, signed on to the project. And so I was sort of working with her and working through some of her questions about the essays as I wrote the new ones. And so, yeah, these threads and connections between them started to emerge and started to sort of coalesce, but really in a in an organic way as I wrote. It, it definitely wasn't like at any point I sat down and thought, well, this is going to be a book about boundaries and <laughs> it's going to come in in the following ways in each of the essays. It was really more like, these are the questions I'm drawn to. And then by the end, seeing like, oh, this is what knits them together. What is that experience like for you personally of sort of realizing that these sort of disparate topics that you've been thinking of are all on some level about something else entirely are all sort of about the sort of issue of boundaries like what is that what does it feel like to have those self-discoveries come to you out of your writing and artistic process it's both exciting and gratifying like oh I, I was working on something this whole time this isn't just like a random <laughs> set of ideas like there was a larger project that like maybe I was unconsciously working through as I went through the process of writing these but then at the same time it's frustrating because it's like gosh like why can't I ever see the forest for the trees or like why is it so hard for me to really know what it is that I'm writing about as I'm writing and actually there was a review of my book in the Brooklyn Rail that came out yesterday and I kind of like I don't like reading reviews. They stress me out and it's hard for me to even really absorb what's in them. But I I usually like glance through them if I know they're not really cruel or something. And this one had a sentence that was like, it's interesting. This book is about boundaries. And like her first book was also about like what it means to try to construct a self while blurring the boundaries of the self. And I was like, that blew my mind. I was like, whoa, (laughs) it never occurred to me that that both books are kind of about the boundaries of the self and how you fashion the self. You kind of undercut one of my questions there. (laughs) Oh, shoot. (laughs) No, that's okay. But I mean, I think that I think it really is true and really fascinating, right? Like even in the title of the previous book, my autobiography of Carson McCullers, right? Like there is that sort of blurring of the boundaries. I, yeah. I was also interested in a way that I think your research process in both books kind of blurs boundaries. So you mm. talk about, both in this book and the previous one, spending time in Car- Rachel Carson's home on the coast of Maine for Thin Skin. And then, of course, you spent a, a, a great deal of time in Carson McCullers' home in oh, Alabama. Georgia. Georgia. Okay. In Georgia, when you were writing that book. And I was I was really fascinated by this idea that Right, your writing process has you living in the same space as your subjects so frequently. How does being in your subject's physical environment, to an extent dissolving that boundary between you and them, affect the ways that you see them and the ways that you write about them? I think in both those cases, I was lucky enough to find myself in a house that was in certain ways largely unchanged from the time when either Carson McCullers or Rachel Carson inhabited it. Mm. Um, The Rachel Carson house was a really big surprise. And I didn't, you know, with Carson McCullers, like once I knew that there was a residency at her home, 
I was already working on the project and I'd already been deep in her archives at the University of Texas at Austin at the Ransom Center. But I knew I wanted to continue that archival research. I wanted to go to Columbus to the archives there. I wanted to go to the house. It was a clear goal to me, like if I'm going to really understand Carson McCullers in her own words, I should try to inhabit the spaces that she inhabited. I should try to, I don't know, see it from her perspective, even in terms of a physical space, even in terms of the objects she saw every day. With Rachel Carson, it was kind of a big surprise. Like I had been reading her work. A lot of it came into the title essay, Thin Skin, because I was writing about environmental contamination and illness. And, you know, thinking about Silent Spring, then I was reading her biographies. And then I was reading her collected letters with Dorothy Freeman, who was her partner for a number of years. So I was just kind of fascinated by her life and by her story and by her work. And so I realized, oh, she and Dorothy spent a lot of time together at this house in Maine on this island. I wonder if you can go to this island. Like, I wonder Mm. if people live on the island. I wonder if I could visit it. And so I just Googled to figure out where the island was. And at the bottom of the page, it said, if you want to rent the house, email this address. And I was like, what's happening? (laughs) First of all, I can't believe you can rent the house. And second of all, like, how am I like doing this again without meaning to, you know, like how am I back in this space again? But yeah, I mean, that was such an incredible experience in terms of, yeah, just trying to understand why this particular spot, this island, Maine, the coastline, the intertidal zone, like why was that so important to Rachel Carson and her work and her larger thinking about the environment? How did being in that place and specifically being in that place with Dorothy help inspire her to write Silent Spring and to think about her role and her writing's role differently in terms of how it might affect the way other people think about their engagement with the environment? And yeah, so being in this house that has not been updated, that has like the oven from the 1950s that we Mm. used and like picking blueberries on the hillside and exploring some of the areas where she and Dorothy were looking for these little fairy caves at low tide. That just gives you a lens on her experience that no biography or letter or a document can give you, right? There's just something to the, the emotions you can access by being in the place and just to the particularity of that perspective. I couldn't find where it was when I went back to look, but I I remember reading the portions of your essays where you were talking about being in Rachel Carson's space and about also her experience of Maine, her experience of her life with Dorothy. And there's a conception of anarchism that is the beautiful idea. The sort of notion behind that is that in order to create a better world, we have to believe that a better world is possible and we have to live as though we have to live as though it exists in a certain way, Mm -hmm. live as as though it's accessible at the very least. And I remember reading that section on Rachel Carson and on Maine and, and thinking about that piece of it. And I'm, I'm curious, especially because I think you deal so much with themes of responsibility and complicity and right the sort of complications and the complexities of living in a world that is so reliant, living in a, in a social milieu that is so reliant on toxicity, not just environmental, but in terms of racism and classism and sexism and all these other things. I'm curious what kind of role you see that sort of vision of the future playing in in your own work, in your own writing? Mm. Well, it became important to me in particular in the meaning of life. But I think throughout the book, I mentioned this in the preface, that while I feel like I'm critiquing systems as they exist, I'm also trying to document 
coping mechanisms for living within those systems. Mm. Um, things that I do and things that other people I know and other people in my reading are doing just to try to acknowledge what we're living within, but also get through it and feel okay. And also just the ways in which those systems make us feel bad. So that's kind of at play in each of the essays in different ways. But in The Meaning of Life, I really ended up very intentionally. It's interesting at the beginning, you mentioned that it was an essay about motherhood, which is also how I've often referred to it. But the whole point of it is that it's about, yeah, like, it's about what not else motherhood. is there besides yeah. motherhood, right? Like it's, it's about, yeah, it's about non-motherhood, which we just don't have a word for. <laughs> like we just don't have like personhood perhaps. <laughs> uh, personhood, right, right, right. Which is something I write about too. And so it took me a long time in writing that essay to get out from under motherhood itself and from yeah. needing to focus on that to be like, no, no, okay, but I want to know what else is there. So then to do that, to do the what else is there, then required me to do more research and to kind of pay attention to things that were already coming my way or that I was already reading. Like I was already totally obsessed with Tove Janssen, the Finnish Mm, writer. I love her. She's so cool. Um, But she was like a mid-century writer in Finland who, and she created the movements, those cartoons and children's books, which are also amazing, as well as books for adults. But in the meantime, she was inhabiting this island with her partner Tuti, and they built a cabin together on the island. And that life that they created there, even though they could only be there in the summer because the weather is so severe, was just so inspiring to me. And so like that vision And then I was reading about Octavia Butler and the way she was trying to use her writing and specifically science fiction writing as a way to envision other ways to live, but also within her own life to use writing and creative practice as a means of accessing a different form of being, like a different way of being a person than the one that she was raised with. So I kind of just started following those threads. I read a lot about the lesbian separatists Mm. who are like so interesting and so problematic and you know, just like who else is thinking about this? Who else is trying to find new ways and new visions? And so then at a certain point in that essay, I realized that the things that I was being drawn to read and and to learn about also belonged in the piece. Like there also needed to be this turn to looking at these different ways of being that existed and that existed in the past that I find super inspiring. There's nothing like a Grateful Dead concert and there's nothing like the Grateful Dead Zone. Host Eric Nelson assembles the ultimate dead concert, a make-believe psychedelic ballroom, with two sets of dead music, each song taken from a different concert and a different year, selected from the very best of their vast live archive. Whether you're a deadhead or a casual bystander, let there be songs to fill the airwaves on The Grateful Dead Zone every Saturday at noon, only on K-Squid, 89.5, 89.7, and 90.7 FM, and ksqd.org. Well, I want to turn a little more into the the content of some of the essays now. Near the end of the title essay of Thin Skin, you write, We want to believe that there's a way to distribute poison in the environment that would keep us safe, that would not harm any particular group unnecessarily, that would not by necessity designate some areas sacrifice zones. But you conclude that there is no such way. How does reckoning with that, with the fact of our reliance on products and processes that unleash toxicity on us and the world we inhabit, affect your understanding of what it means to be sensitive, to be vulnerable? Hmm. I think there's a way in which the toxicity of the world we live in, the ways in which we all unequally, but all have been treated as though we're living in sacrifice zones, right? Like there's no place that's untouched. There's no body that's untouched by this, but obviously different bodies in different places are affected to different extents, which is something I'm writing about in that essay. 
once you're kind of clued into that and aware of that, it's very hard to let it go. It's very hard to not see the pervasiveness, the insidiousness. And I think I think we recognize that on some level. I think everyone feels that, but that there's a self-protective mechanism that goes into play where it's like, well, I'm just, I can't feel all that. I can't hold all that. I can't be sensitive to that, right? Like I need to somehow toughen. I need to somehow like harden my exterior to just like not think about that. I think the way most people get through the day is by not thinking about it too hard or, or by kind of not even being able to absorb that which that's an interesting word there too but like not even being able to absorb that information since this book has come out a lot of my friends here in Santa Fe and acquaintances and people I work with have approached me to say I started reading your book I started the first essay I was reading it before I went to bed and then I had really bad dreams or (sighs) and then I couldn't sleep so now I can't read it before bed and I'm like I'm sorry. (laughs) But also, you know, like, I think maybe there's a way in which it touches more deeply because I start out specifically writing about nuclear weapons development and contamination in New Mexico. So it's stuff that's very close to home for us here. But throughout that essay, I sort of branch out from there to look at where my mom grew up on the south side of Chicago, where my dad grew up in rural Illinois. And basically to say, like, even if you're not living in a nuclear war zone like we are here, specifically that Native people are here you're living with something, you know, you're, you're in something, you have to open your eyes to it. And so if there's this impulse to shut down and not even be able to engage with that or, or recognize it, I think maybe one of the subtle claims or arguments of this book is that, no, actually we need to like open ourselves to that and, and to allow ourselves to be sensitive to it and to feel it. And that there's something powerful to be claimed just in that acknowledgement. Yeah. So that, that section that I sort of quoted from before, I found that to be really powerful, not just for that piece of it, but then in the discussion of what it would mean to have safe distribution of poison or just distribution of poison. And especially the sort of response you have to that, right? You say the system we live within has always relied and still relies on poison, producing poison and discarding poison. The United States banned DDT for most uses after Silent Spring, but it's still legal to manufacture. And I found that sentence, which is, it's just a fact, right? It's its not editorialized in any particularly strong way to be itself a really powerful one, that we have been trained even to think of our complicity as consumers, as people who are purchasing these things, who are making use of them. And so it's like we almost got tricked into thinking that because we're no longer using this product it no longer has an impact, not just on the world at large, but even in our own spaces, right? If it's being produced here in the U.S., then the waste from that production process has to go somewhere. And I, I just, I found that really powerful. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the question is that goes with that, but I, I was really fascinated by just all the little threads that you pull on in this essay and the ways that you are making those connections between the different types of contamination and our different responses to them. Like, I think there's a point in this where you talk about sharing knowledge as being almost like a contagion. Well, I I was going to say a couple of things. One is that DDT is still used to prevent malaria, especially in Africa. Um, And so like, you can actually like really get into the weeds on this. And there's people who are really polarized about whether or not it should be used. And people who believe that Rachel Carson was wrong and like that it's retroactively almost like racist that she wanted to get rid of. Like you can really go deep. And so that speaks to the complexity and to the threads, right? Like uh, that there are many threads here to pull on. But I think 
for me, it was interesting to just think about how easy it was for us to start using those chemicals without knowing Mm. what they were capable of and what they were doing to us. And then to just sit with that and to think about all the new things that are constantly coming onto the market that we're using without knowing their effects. Like Rachel Carson was just the very tip of an iceberg here, like explaining, okay, we're using this thing indiscreetly, but once you start paying attention to what's happening to the birds or whatever, like extrapolate from that and think about what it could be doing to us. Like I'm using a new migraine medication that's like so new that there's not a generic. It costs a bazillion dollars. The insurance doesn't want to cover it. It works. It gets rid of migraines. But every time I take it, I'm like, they haven't done long-term studies on this, yeah. <laughs> you know, like who they knows? Can't like, who knows what it could be doing? So I'm like really excited that it works. But, you know, I think people were really excited that DDT worked at the time too, right? Yeah. And then in terms of, you know, information as contagion or, or sharing and writing about these things and talking about these things as a form of contagion, I feel like that's true too. I think my experience, especially in writing the title essay, because I interviewed a number of people in New Mexico who are experts on the contamination of the land through uranium mining, scientists, artists, activists working and lobbying against nuclear weapons development, which is ongoing here. And then I also interviewed my mom, I interviewed my dad, I interviewed a number of people for this. So there was a feeling as I went through that process of being contaminated myself by Mm hearing their stories. And then once that was with me, like I couldn't let it go. I couldn't not spread it further. So, I mean, it's kind of a good metaphor, but I also don't think it's a bad thing. Like I think that the way that essay ends is by quoting one of the people I talked to, an activist named Marian Naranjo from Santa Clara Pueblo, who says the first step is for us to keep talking about this, is doing more of this, more talking about this subject, which is, again, something people deeply don't want to talk about, don't want to think about, that keeps them up at night (laughs) and their dreams. But then, but I, I think one of the arguments of that piece is the importance of having this conversation. Yeah. So another theme in this collection, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up Marianne because she's going to come up again here, is the relationship between our responsibilities to the world and to each other and the guilt we feel over our complicity and injustice. In Thin Skin, you write, for Marianne and her mentor, responsibility for how the land has been used sits not just on the shoulders of Oppenheimer, of the lab, of the U.S. government. The responsibility, in her view, is also hers. Her response is to raise a flag, to expose the harms caused by the lab, to attend to those harms and attempt to repair them. In contrast, you write in your essay the too muchness about the guilt and complicity consumers feel about ordering things, about throwing things away, about using energy, considering all that we now have no choice but to know. We respond to it not by reducing our consumption, not by asking for modernity to throw up its hands and dismantle itself, as as you quote Tracy Bryn Voiles as saying, but by paying for carbon offsets and other, and I thought this was such a brilliant line, quote, modern forms of Catholic indulgences. <laughs> How do we navigate the differences between taking responsibility and assuaging our guilt, between resisting injustice and coping with it? And what is the role of the artist in that process? Mm, a big question. I am so suspicious of things like carbon offsets, but if I'm still like ordering some new object and having it shipped from some faraway place where it was manufactured from some other faraway place, how can we offset that? How can we undo that? And, you know, I would say that it's just me, that it's just my own actually having been raised Catholic, but also having taken environmental science when I was in high school. So like (laughs) these ideas have really been with me for a long time in my life. It's just me and that's, I'm the one who feels guilty, but other people must not. But I think the very existence of something like a box you can click in your shopping cart to offset carbon emissions suggests 
that the guilt is there and that we are ready to pay to make it go away and to feel better, like that we feel pretty bad about this. And in terms of assuaging that, in terms of the role of the artist and in terms of actually taking responsibility, the questions I land on in the book are less about how can we eradicate our impact? How can we offset our carbon emissions to zero? How can we erase our carbon footprint altogether? And more about how can we reimagine what sort of legacy and what sort of impacts we want to have while we're here? Mm. And it's like a flip and it's not really the way we're used to thinking about environmental, even in terms of the conversation about climate change, like we're always talking about reversal. How can we go back in time and make this not have happened? But I think scientists are pretty much at the point of realizing it's no longer reversible, like we can't actually undo what we've done. And so the question for me becomes more about, so then what can we do now? And there were some interesting things that came up in my research for Thin Skin in that regard. Dr. Johnny Lewis, who works for the EPA, when I talked to her, she was trying to figure out particularly what native plants in New Mexico could absorb uranium and mm. and basically like convert it into something no longer toxic, which is fascinating, yeah, the idea yeah. that a plant could do this. And then it was about figuring out like which plants are not actually really important or sacred to the people who are living in these lands. And then how can we then use them to absorb or, or remediate some of this toxicity? So I don't know, ideas like that. I feel like could be extrapolated outward. But for me, it's more about thinking about what kind of legacy do we want to leave if the legacy of human beings to date has been so much destruction in terms of, you know, 70% of species of wildlife die off. What can we do going forward? What kind of impacts do we want to leave? So I want to do one more question before we have you read. You did an interview with Electric Literature, and in that you said, I often find myself wanting to speak out in my writing about something that other people don't want to talk about, which is something that that you've brought up here as well. It's a theme that comes up for you in that title essay, your desire to speak contrasted with the feeling that no one wants to hear what you have to tell them, that it's too painful, too depressing, people have bad dreams, that knowing about (laughs) environmental contamination won't change anything and will only serve to isolate you and other activists further. And yet in your discussion of Rachel Carson's life and activism, you point to the determined joy at work in her own life. She could write Silent Spring in part because she had joyful experiences in the world that she wanted to protect. What role does joy play in your own process? What role does it play in the work of the activists and artists you talk to in the course of researching and writing this book? Joy is so important. Um, I think that's something I'm learning and wanting to implement more into my writing practice. And that kind of a funny moment right now. I'm taking a break from writing and trying to figure out how to reapproach it in a way that feels more nourishing Mm. and less depleting, that feels less like a series of really dire assignments I give myself and more like being in touch with some kind of creative energy or whatever. Like it sounds so woo-woo to talk about and I'm still figuring this out myself. But yes, I'm trying to figure out how my writing process might in the future be more joyful, even though I do get a lot of joy from writing I don't feel like the way I go about it is necessarily joy inducing. At the same time, I was so inspired, as you're talking about, by Rachel Carson, by what Lita Maxwell called the environmental politics of desire, and by the fact that she was writing Silent Spring out of this like longing to protect the joy that she had found in nature and in her relationships with birds and with other yeah. creatures and, and landscapes. And so, you know, I think 
a lot of that is at work in my own life, which you will read about in these essays too. Like my decision to move to New Mexico to try to kind of find a place that is quiet, that is close to the natural world and a place where I can be in touch with that on a day-to-day basis in my life through being in my garden. This year I started keeping bees, which is a very joyful uh, and interesting thing. But even in terms of the other people I talked to in the book, the artist Eliza Naranjo Morris talked to me for Thin Skin. And um, I just remember, I've had a number of conversations with her like this, but she's also always trying to figure out how her art making, she's a visual artist, can be a source of joy and of nourishment in her Mm -hmm. life and like what other ways that can be found. And in one of her recent projects that meant working with a retirement community here to help them grow flowers and vegetables and then create this exhibition that also involved sending everyone home with like a Mm -hmm. bushel of flowers. So like, there's something really inspiring to me about that, like that your art could be just like giving someone flowers instead <laughs> of like giving them nightmares. <laughs> you actually reminded my husband is a composer and a while ago, I mean, like more than half a decade ago, he had an installation piece where there was a teddy bear that had like a little speaker in it and it said, have a cookie. And there was a plate of cookies beneath it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I don't more always cookies. think of yeah. I, mean, I think I think he would probably describe it as more playful than joyful. But there's a there's a way in which it's it, it can be both. Yeah, yeah, and well, and that both are so important for art making and for being a person. Even though I think like culturally, we really devalue those things a lot of the time. Join KSQD the second Sunday each month for Intersections, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Intersections takes you to the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. Meet notable people in diverse fields who are asking important questions. Their experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. Tune into Intersections Sunday evening at 6 here on K-Squid 89.5, 89.7, and 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. Well, I think this is a good time to have you read from the book. Before you do, can you set it up a little? Can you tell us about what we're going to hear? So I'm going to read the very beginning of Crystal Vortex, which is the second to last essay. It's actually the essay that I thought would start the book. And there was a time when I was writing it when I was sure the book was going to be called Crystal Vortex. And this is the essay that is about self-help, but it's also about all the different machinations we go through in terms of trying to care for ourselves. But is that self-indulgent? Is making art self-indulgent? Is writing about yourself self-indulgent? And then what are the different ways that creative practitioners throughout history have dealt with those questions? So I look to the artist I worked for, a visual artist named Bruce Nauman. I look to Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way, and Victor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning, and then a bunch of people in the sort of dance and movement world. And that's sort of where this essay begins. Crystal Vortex. Marianne thought someone put the whammy on her. The pain in her neck just struck her one day. But who it was and what was causing it, these weren't important. What mattered now, she said, was doing what she knew how to do. Heal herself. Move out of pain. I met Marianne Soto a few years ago at an artist residency in Wyoming, where we, a dance choreographer and a sleepy writer, shared a studio overlooking a creek. She was trying to write about her teacher, Elaine Summers, 
a choreographer with Judson Dance Theater who developed the technique called kinetic awareness. It's a somatic practice in which you move each part of the body on its own with precise awareness of the muscles you're using and how much tension you're applying. Summers wanted dancers to feel and use every tiny muscle independently and to recognize and engage the connection between their bodies and minds at all times. She trained us to move every part of the body, every direction it could go, with the full range of tension and speed from zero to 100, recalls Marianne. She had a marvelous exercise called bone hugging, where you apply three-dimensional tension to each bone in the body. You squeeze. Her training involves observing the body's changes and sensations while lying on a set of balls of varying sizes and shapes to develop consciousness of the body in the ever-changing now, a process that ultimately has healing effects. It sounds fundamentally akin to what many people I know, myself included, are seeking when they go to healing springs and spas, to the massage therapist, to yoga, a way to be in their bodies more fully, to move out of pain. At the residency, Marianne was becoming distinctly aware of the challenge of writing about a physical practice that could only be taught and passed on through the body, person to person, and that isn't recorded, possibly can't exist in language. How do you preserve it, maintain it, keep it going? It's not something you can hire someone else to do for you, and it's not something you can buy. It's something you have to do, much like dance. I used to dance seriously from age 3 to 18. When I spent so many hours training after school, I barely had time to breathe. When I was injured in a black swan-esque fall my senior year, legs taken out from under me by another dancer, I had to stop for the first time. My back sent throngs of pain into my left hip every time I bent over, and I spent the rest of high school going to physical therapy at six in the morning, struggling to get in and out of my car. The physical therapist kept telling me that I had to do exercises at home, that it was the only way to heal, but I wanted so badly to be fixed. In ballet and modern, I loved using my mind to push shapes into and through my body. It was an experience of flow, of connection between my ever-active mind and every tiny muscle, getting them to work together, to do impossible things, no room for other thinking. Most of the time I live in my head and snub my body, forget about it. In my 30s, suffering from chronic pain and migraines, kinetic awareness intrigues me as my skepticism of alternative healing modalities wanes and my affinity for them deepens. I'll try anything. We are in a woo renaissance. Practices we lump under the category New Age, many of which were adopted or flat-out appropriated from thousand-year-old Eastern traditions or indigenous ceremonies, yoga, stills, sage smudges, incense, astrology, meditation, are a booming business in America. Sage smudging has become so popular for cleansing one's face of perceived toxic auras that white sage has been over-harvested making it difficult to access for indigenous people who have used it for centuries. Crystal mining is destroying the earth and miners' bodies, just as coal mining does. Like our faith in supplements, in exercise, in dieting, our faith in Wu is scientifically unsound and yet unshakable. We dabblers and new believers are in the process of colonizing spiritual practice, the mystical, a final frontier. The global pandemic only makes our faith stronger as our awareness of being sick or the potential for getting sick grows. 
When I say our faith, I include myself, studying the astrological forecast, wearing black tourmaline to dispel negative energies, placing huge weight on the words of yoga teachers, all of which suggests we are looking to heal ourselves, to move out of pain, and we are looking for something to put our faith into, seeking some kind of meaning, or at least I am. Thank you for that reading. There's so much going on even in just this one short passage, but I wanted to start at kind of the phrase level. There's a phrase you repeat throughout this essay, and I I think I counted it three times in that section. You suggest that all of the sort of new age woo practices we seek out, from things like kinetic awareness to self-help to smudging our houses with sage to remove negative energy, are about moving out of pain. What does that phrase mean to you? Why moving out of pain? I think that phrase, and I clocked it too when I just read that. I was like, huh, three times I used that. I think it came from Marianne herself. Mm. I think it was when she was talking specifically about her neck injury, which she was hilarious about. (laughs) She really did believe someone had put the whammy on her. But that, you know, she really believed in this physical practice that she could do for herself to help relieve, you know, whatever pain it was she was going through. And that was physical pain, certainly, but it was also other kinds of pain she might be experiencing. But there was always a somatic, like a physical way to access it through movement. And that was part of her training with Elaine Summers. And that was part of really, you know, the kind of the whole concept of dance as she practices it. I found that phrase really intriguing because as I was looking into these different forms of what I was thinking of as self help, but that are also these sort of woo practices, crystals, right? Yoga. They seem on some level like things we do because they're pleasurable, Mm. but at the root of them is, even if it's not fully acknowledged, at the root of it is some kind of pain or some kind of lack or some kind of problem we're trying to solve. Mm. I remember being struck by that when I went to, there's a shop in Santa Fe called The Ark. That's a bookstore. It sells all the woo books, like the books on witchcraft and astrology and everything. But it also sells tons and tons of crystals. And in each little crystal case, there's little cards that tell you what the crystals are for. And they're for all kinds of things. They're like, if you have heartache, right? Or if you are experiencing grief, right? Like all of these different forms of pain we might be experiencing. So while the objects themselves or the practices might look kind of like shiny or happy or easy things, the reason we're going for them usually is, yeah, a desire to move out of pain, a desire to deal with something that's hurting. In that excerpt that you just read, you also talk about the difficulties that Marion is facing when trying to write about a physical and embodied practice. And at later points, both a little bit in that excerpt and and then later on in that essay, you talk about a kind of corollary tension you experience when you're writing in attending to your body. For both of you, there is this boundary between the experiential and the verbal. How do you reconcile these tensions? How do you dissolve that boundary? Hmm. Well, I was so inspired by sharing a studio with Marianne because our practices couldn't have been more different. Hmm. You know, the way I approach writing, and I've been doing this since I wrote my dissertation in graduate school, is by showing up here to my desk every day to my computer and whatever it is I'm, you know, reading or researching or typing or working through, just kind of like pounding away at it until I am like exhausted and can't work anymore. And to do that, like with a lot of diligence and in order to do that, it 
I think has required me to ignore my body, which has led mm. to like a shoulder injury and all kinds of other pains and, and issues that then I seek out these different practices and yeah. healers to try to help with when it's something I'm very much causing myself through the way that I work. And watching her work, she was immediately totally frustrated and confounded by the amount that she had to sit to write when she's a dancer and a choreographer so she's mm. used to spending the day moving around and stretching and being in her body and she was like oh like this is awful I just have to sit here all day this is horrible and it just <laughs> had never really occurred to me that that might be what someone's reaction would be to being in their head all day and like typing she really didn't like it and she just she really didn't like the way it felt in her body and so then I kept catching her I think I read about this outside. She does these branch dances. She'd be like holding the seven foot branch and balance on one foot out in the creek because she just couldn't stand to be sort of locked in that one position all day. And so, yeah, I think I'm always interested in that boundary and interested in how I can bring more consciousness to my body as I write. And I think she was trying to learn how she could be in her head, but she was unable to kind of snub her body in the way I and many people who work at a computer all day have learned to do. Join KSQD every Monday evening for the award-winning program Peace Talks Radio. News of war, conflict, and political divisiveness fill our media. The Peace Talks Radio series helps counterbalance that with talk about making peace in our daily lives and information on topics that relate to a more peaceful world, locally, nationally, and globally. Peace Talks Radio airs Monday at 6 p.m. here at KSquid 89.5, 89.7, and 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. You talk about the artist's way in this in this essay, in this chapter, and there are a few practices in that that are more embodied. But one of the things that was especially sort of, I don't know, it like it raised my spidey sense or whatever. You talk about the practice of morning pages where you're sit sitting down and writing every single day, not with a sort of plan or a thought, it's all stream of consciousness. And then you talk later about how in The Artist's Way, there is this discussion of the ways that producing art, that writing can drain your creative energy and trying to refill that. And it's interesting because one of the practices that is introduced, first of all, to refill that creativity is this practice of, of writing. It is actually engaging in the creative process in some way. I'm curious how you, for yourself, see or navigate like, how do you distinguish between those things, between the types of writing that are, are draining or the types of writing that are refueling? Mm. Well, I think the morning pages, my understanding is that they're really meant to be stream of consciousness, like whatever you're thinking about that morning. So they're mm. like really boring for the most part. They're like, well, I ate for breakfast and I didn't sleep so good last night. I think it's because of it. Just really like there's a spider over there or whatever. But that the reason you're doing them is not because you're trying to write beautiful sentences or you're trying to really capture a description of something or understand an idea. You're just kind of trying to let the contents of your mind out onto the page. And also that there's something to be said. And this also comes from Natalie Goldberg in writing down the bones in the physical act mm. of writing longhand. And then there's a release in that. And that maybe there's a way in that space that you will, without even really meaning to, begin to tap into some unconscious ideas and some things that haven't come to the surface, but that are important to your work. In my own writing for this book, for example, I kept a journal every day, starting with when I was at the residency and I was doing the morning pages. 
where I was just kind of writing about what was going on in my day-to-day life. But at the same time, in my day-to-day life, I was conducting these interviews. I was doing tons of reading on all these different topics for the essays. Mm. And so within those pages, ideas started to come out. And my own kind of wrestling with those ideas came out. Whether I intended it to or not, it just sort of was there. And I discovered that by going back through the pages and then eventually like gathering some highlighters because I was like, oh, this seems like it pertains to thin skin. This seems like it pertains to crystal vortex. This thing that just kind of appears in the middle of the really boring (laughs) description of my day or whatever. So it's almost for me like this process ends up being weirdly connected where the refilling of the well by just sort of letting your unconscious wander freely was then also the material that often ended up in the book. The way I described using my self or my life as source material was by returning to those journals and then bringing that text into the book as well. So I was kind of treating my own life like it was just another book or article, right? But it was like a journal, which I realized kind of weird, but... (laughs) And I think there's this line, I think this is also in Crystal Vortex, but I'm not positive, where you say something like, what's left of me off the page? Yeah. And I think that's a really profound piece too. And it ties in like it and what you were just talking about, I think also tie in with this the ways that like corporations have co-opted a lot of self-help, a lot of wellness space, a lot of woo because they realize, oh, we can sell this back to workers as a way to like replenish their productivity. And then, you know, we can take from that productivity. And I mean, I'm curious, like, that's something that I think about a lot in my own life is some of these practices are genuinely helpful for me. I have, I have kind of chronic neck and back pain. And I hate to say it, but yoga really does help with that for me. Sure does. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, the notion that I should be doing those things, not just to be a person, but to be a worker, to be a, you know, a busy bee in society, I think is is a tricky one for me. I don't like to be told that it's what's good for me. I'm curious how you like, are those tensions that you sort of feel in your own life as well? Definitely. I mean, it's almost like it just ends up having to be about the intention for yourself and Mm -hmm. how you use it, right? Like if yoga makes you feel better and like you want to feel better, then that seems like a great thing to do. But then if you're feeling better is the difference between you putting in three more hours of work (laughs) or not, you know, right? Like then it becomes, you know, it's like, what do you do without feeling better? And where do you apply it? And I don't know. I think something I talk about in that essay is this aimless walk that my therapist wanted me to take that I couldn't figure out how to do. Like I couldn't not turn it into something like an errand or like exercise. I just couldn't (laughs) conceive of doing something without a point. And I think I think that's still true for me. And so these exercises, things like the morning pages are really helpful to me because they give me a structure in which to be aimless, a structure in which almost to rest. And then it's ironic in a way that then it becomes useful to my work. And I don't know exactly how to square that. But you're catching me at a funny moment. I just got back from book tour for this book. And slowly as the days progress, it is sinking into my body how exhausted and drained Mm. I am. And trying to figure out what to do with that feeling and like realizing just in the past few days, oh, I think 
the thing to do with that feeling right now is to watch a bunch of U.S. Open tennis and like not move <laughs> for many hours at a time, which is not usually what I would do. In my mind, I was like, okay, well, this, these are the things I got on the docket for this week. I've got to do this application for this residency and blah, blah, blah. And every fiber of my being is like, no, we're not doing it. We're not doing any of it. And so now I'm like, okay, I guess I just have to accept that and try yeah. to rest. But it's still, even having written this, and I think writing this in a way to try to teach myself something about the creative yeah. process and about like how to be in a different relationship with it it's still a struggle it's still very confounding for me <laughs> a little bit of a more serious question in this essay you ground your discussion of of woo and self-help and an understanding of the history of colonization that many of us are adopting these practices to help ourselves cope with the very injustices we benefit from and have often helped to create or uphold mm. what does reckoning with that with those types of truths those tensions look like for you as a person, but also as a writer? Hmm. Well, I mean, the only way I know how to reckon with anything is by doing a lot of research and then writing about it. So those things come through in that essay, in part because I wanted to understand the practices themselves and why people are drawn to them, how certain of them have been helpful in the past. Like I remember being really inspired to learn that Elsa Gindler, who was a dancer and, and kind of a, yeah. a movement person and was a teacher of Elaine Summers, who was the teacher of Marianne, she actually like helps people who were living through the Holocaust to like learn how to stand for long periods of time, just helping them physically with some of the things that might be demanded of them if they were put into a concentration camp. Like I just thought that was such an interesting way of using one's skills to be mm -hmm. helpful to other people when you might not look at a crisis like the Holocaust and think, what could really help is a dancer. Like you might not yeah. think that. <laughs> you might not think that's something that could be helpful, but the people who reported on it afterwards said it was immensely helpful because they mm -hmm. had to stand for such long periods of time and suddenly they had an ability to breathe and to be strong through that. So I guess that is an interesting model for me for like how writing or how art can help us kind of reckon with some of these realities that we're living within. But I don't know. I don't know if I have a very good answer to that. Other than the, the best way I know how to deal with anything is just by trying to learn more about it. Yeah. So I want to move briefly to the, the last essay in this collection before we close. It contends, as we talked about a little bit before, with the pressures that women face, often legal as well as social, to have children and to sort of make the meaning of their life about children, about care for others, and the isolation that's sort of inherent in resisting those pressures. And I have to say, I read the vast majority of this book and then left a tiny bit at the end. I left really, it turned out, just the coda at the end um, for yesterday. Mm. And when I sat down and read it, it really, <laughs> it hit me kind of full force. My dad died last year and yeah, he's not so my sorry. mother, but, well, and I'm sorry about your mother. I really am. I mean, I think what you described as... Right, you wrote this whole thing that is is largely abstract, and then when you go to CODA, it becomes it becomes personal in a different set of ways. It becomes about reckoning with these questions of what it means to be a daughter as well, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I was really fascinated by that transition and about the way that, for me at least, reading that CODA and having it be something that I read separately changed my perspective on the rest of the essay. I'm curious about that process for you. And like, did you always know that you were going to bring the loss of your mother into this essay? How did that sort of arrive? And when you were processing that, how did it how did it affect your perspective on some of these more abstract ideas? 
Well, I mean, this is right central to a lot of the things we've been talking about, like what it means to write about yourself and to write about your life. And then suddenly something huge happens in your life. And then that really changes what you're writing and, and what you can write and what you think about what you're writing. So I was in the middle of writing that essay when my mom died very suddenly and unexpectedly in mm. August of 2021, so about two years ago. And it wasn't, I mean, I mean, it was an abdominal aneurysm, so it was totally an out of the blue thing. So then I, in the months following that, eventually I kind of found my way back to writing the essay and it was like, how the hell am I supposed to finish this essay about not having kids when this like huge, like monumental life altering thing has happened to me that is forcing me to confront on a daily basis? Who was my mother? And how do I stand in relation to her and to her memory? And what would she have wanted for my life? And these are conversations Mm. we never got to have. So like, why did she have kids? And was that the fulfillment of her dreams? Or was that something that sidetracked her career, which, you know, ostensibly it did. Again, all of these things are conversations we never got to have. So in a way, coming back to the essay and, you know, the parts of the essay that are actually about my mom, when I was a kid, I, I kind of came to those with new eyes and had new questions, you know, new things I wanted to know, things that, again, like it never occurred to me to ask while she was alive. But it was really intense trying to navigate that and trying to finish that piece and and then ultimately wanting that to be part of it, but not wanting that to be the thing that shaped it. Right. Mm. So like, I didn't want it to start with my mom died and now I'm here to talk to you about why I'm not having kids. So you already feel really bad for me. So like, whatever I say, you're probably <laughs> going to be okay with, you know? And there's actually, there was a magazine that wanted to publish an excerpt of that piece where they did just that, where they put my mom dying at the very beginning. And then, and I was like, wait, this like ends up being like this weird, I don't know, it creates this false sympathy or something. I don't know. It bugged me. It didn't end up happening. But yeah, it was, it was a negotiation and it was, I actually did a, an online writing workshop with the writer Eula Biss while I was in the middle of, of wrangling with that question. And I just asked and, you know, like, you know what it's like to be in grief and to be in that weird state between two worlds where like, you know, you're really only thinking about this one thing and everything feels connected to it. And so I was in that space in this workshop and I said, you know, I'm writing a book of essays and I'm on the last essay and my mom just died. And I think I have to start over and rewrite all the essays because my whole life has just changed. So should I? (laughs) That was my question. And Elizabeth was like, no, do not do that. Please don't do that. And told this story about her first book, her collection of essays, Notes from No Man's Land, and how she wanted to keep revising it and changing it every time something happened in her life. It mm. did that for a number of years until finally an editor grabbed her and was like, no, you have to, this has to be a book from the vantage point of when you wrote these. Yeah, It can't contain everything you learned after, right? You have to freeze it in time and let it stand there. And so at the meaning of life, I had to like freeze it in time, but kind of also bring in that later perspective that sort of ends up haunting the piece after you've read it. That phrase freezing in time is is such an interesting one for me in this context, because I think in some ways that's what grief is about, right? It's about the fact that this person Mm -hmm. is now frozen in time, that they don't get to keep moving. And I can totally see how in the context of that, I mean, you do... I did want to change my entire life and how you would then want to change, right? Like you'd want everything to be a continuation of that person in some way. Um, yeah. 
for what it's worth, I think Eulabis gave you some good advice. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> Thank you. It's an excellent well, and someone. Oh, thanks. Someone told me somewhere in that in the grieving process, and I found this helpful. Yes, there's a way in which the person you've lost is frozen in time, but also your relationship with them will continue to change and evolve for the rest of your life, which that's A, true, and B, really interesting that our relationship with my mom continues to like grow and change, even though she is kind of in this way frozen in time. But the things that I learned from her and the memories I have of her continue to like show up and alter me in different ways going forward. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Um, Jen Chaplin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. You can learn more about Jen at her website, jenshaplin.com. She's also on Instagram at jenshaplin. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at kskd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced and edited for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our mixing engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.